Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Welcome to the show. You're on Done By Law with Bonnie, Ali and Sarush. And tonight we've got a new interviewer. Um, Her name's Meg Tate. Welcome to the show, Meg. Thanks, Sarush. So tonight we're bringing you this show from the lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging and that sovereignty was never ceded. Tonight we're looking at the criminal justice system and some of the complexities within that system from two different perspectives. Firstly, uh, we'll be looking at the proposed reforms to committal proceedings in Victoria. And secondly, we're going to be discussing the role of interpreters in the Catherine region. So first tonight, we'll hear from Victorian barristers, Paul Kunis and Eric Dober on the proposed committal reforms in Victoria. Thanks, Paul and Eric, uh, for coming to speak to me today about the proposed reforms uh, from the Victorian Law Reform Commission um, in relation to committal proceedings in Victoria. Perhaps we'll start maybe by uh, getting both of you to just give us a quick rundown of your um, career history um, and what your work is focusing on at the moment. Um, So, Eric, maybe I'll start with you. Um, So I've been at the bar, uh, I started this year, so I've been there a couple of months. I have a general practice, but it's predominantly criminal-based. Immediately before joining the bar, I was with the State Office of Public Prosecutions for the last five years. So I've had a lot of experience with committals and the indictable criminal justice system. Paul, um, it's fair to say that your experience is uh, almost kind of the opposite of that in terms of um, your criminal focus. Is that right? Well, I've been at the bar a little bit longer than Eric. I'm uh, coming up (laughs) to 15 years now at the bar. Uh, all those 15 years I've been practicing in criminal law with more of a defense focus, but uh, I would say nowadays it's it's about a 50-50 split between defense and prosecution. So I've, I'm fortunate enough to see both sides of the of the equation, but uh, more of a defense focus traditionally. Okay, great. Um, so maybe just to start, um, obviously we're going to be speaking about committals today. Um, could one or both of you just give us a very brief rundown on what, what is a committal and what role does it have in the criminal justice process? A committal is an, it's a pre-trial process and it occurs in the magistrate's court, irrespective of where the case may eventually end up. So it might ultimately be destined for the county court, it might ultimately be destined for the Supreme Court, but it usually commences in the magistrate's court For this pre-trial process, uh, it involves case management, and really what it's designed to do is ensure that the case is properly disclosed by the prosecution to make sure there's enough evidence for the matter to go to trial, uh, to work out where it should properly be heard in terms of the appropriate venue, 
uh, and also very critically to allow the parties to negotiate any kind of a resolution of the matter or to refine the issues in dispute. And in terms of um, where it sort of sits within the criminal uh, trial process, not all matters would go to committal. No, that's true. So it's designed uh, principally for indictable offences. So that's serious criminal offences that would ultimately uh, go to be heard before a jury. It's not designed for less serious matters that could be ultimately determined by a magistrate. And Paul, how would you say a committal um, differs from other pre-trial processes? Um, what's the purpose of a, a committal? It's supposed to allow for some separate uh, judicial or, in this case, administrative oversight by a magistrate uh, to determine whether or not every charge should proceed. It's uh, quite well known within the criminal law community and, in fact, referenced within the VLRC report that quite often police overcharge matters. They send through a, a brief of evidence that has a dozen charges of which maybe three or four, maybe more, have substance. Uh, and this is a process that enables there to be a preliminary uh, sorting of the wheat from the chaff, what might properly proceed and what might not proceed. And it does that by having some of the evidence examined at a preliminary point. It can be very, very useful for the process because once that evidence has been looked at in a more critical way, either by the practitioners or by a magistrate sitting in that capacity, there's a, a broader scope to try and resolve these things. Everyone knows where they're sitting with these things, and, and more often than not, uh, things will resolve once that evidence has been examined. And what about the reforms that you've discussed in um, in this paper that both of you have written? So you've also referenced um, the involvement like, that the OPP or DPP are going to be involved earlier um, and also um, some reforms or proposed reforms around disclosure. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's actually a couple of things that we probably want to want to get through. One is uh, disclosures, as you've mentioned, the supervision of charges at an earlier stage. And the third one and the critical one is the removal of the committal test. Disclosure is an absolutely critical issue in Victoria at the moment, uh, especially in the wake of the Gobbo Royal Commission. Yeah. Now, disclosure is not very well defined and it's not very well understood. And the Law Reform Commission wants to beef up disclosure requirements, and that is unquestionably a good thing. There are very few people in the criminal justice system who would disagree with that. One of the proposals that they have put forward to deal with this is to require the informant, the police officer who is the primary investigator in the matter, to make a declaration to the court that they have provided the accused with all the relevant information or all the information that they have available to them uh, or telling them that there is certain information available but they object to giving it and the reason for doing so. So is this that is any to... different to what's being done now though, Eric? I mean, the difference between what a defence practitioner thinks is relevant and what a police informant thinks is relevant is a huge chasm sometimes. So the yeah. principal difference now is, uh, the principal proposal that we've got from this is that defence practitioners would, would have the opportunity under this proposal to actually be aware of the information that hasn't been provided to them. As things currently stand, a police officer can have a particular piece of information before them and say, I'm not going to disclose that because of 
whatever reason, because of public interest immunity. And they should inform defence that they're going to do that. But experience has shown that they don't, or Mm. at least they don't all of the time. And what this requirement imposes is to clearly define the types of information that need to be provided and include in that, even if you refuse to disclose information, you need to disclose the existence of it. And that at least gives defence practitioners a fighting chance to get access. It's dealing with the unknown unknowns when it comes to information that police hold. There's also the question of the report touches on um, overcharging um, and that there's some recommendations that um, the Victorian Law Reform Commission uh, thinks will specifically address those. Paul, maybe could you explain what what those proposed reforms are? Uh, Yeah, well, look, it's the running joke about a hamburger with a lot that the police informant will often charge every variation of any type of criminal offence that uh, that a particular set of actions could fall under. Uh, that leads to a situation where you've got overloaded indictments and you have a, a process at committals where people try and sort out, and by people I mean the defence practitioners, try and sort out which is the most appropriate charge out of the lot that the, uh, the informant has laid. Mm. The other thing is that informants, whilst they do receive some training, they're police members, they're not lawyers. They don't have the legal analysis skills necessary, in my view, to uh, formulate a, an indictment the way it would be done by a prosecutor, by someone that, uh, like Eric in his in his previous role whilst he was at the Office of Public Prosecutions. I think this recommendation is actually a very strong one to get the director involved earlier, to get people with the legal training, with the real experience of running trials and understanding the way the evidence will come out to review the indictment, to review the charges that uh, would be put before the court so that a lot of this trouble of trying to sort that wheat from the chaff can be gotten rid of. Uh, It means when there might be a particular legal hurdle that stands in the way of particular charges being substantiated, Mm -hmm. hopefully a a legally trained person will look at that and say, well, we, we understand this to be an issue. Let's not waste everybody's time with this and just focus on the important things that should be making their way into the list of charges. So we can move on now to the um, the last point that I think you said, Eric, that um, was you wanted to uh, raise um, that's been addressed in the report, which is the new committal discharge test. Is that correct? That's right. Absolutely. So uh, Paul and I will both want to say our pieces on this. I'm quite <laughs> confident. The So the Law Reform Commission has proposed to abolish what is described as the committal test. What the committal test is, is at the end of a committal hearing, after there's been examination of witnesses and the prosecution has provided the brief of evidence to the magistrate for their consideration, the magistrate makes a decision about whether or not there is sufficient evidence uh, for the matter to proceed into the trial court. And that decision is of historical significance. It's been around for a very, very long time. The Law Reform Commission proposed to get rid of that test because it's only used in terms of magistrates only discharge uh, a a charge, um, that is to strike out the charge and say that there's not sufficient evidence to proceed proceed to trial in 2% of cases. So it is a very, very rarely exercised power in favour of an accused person. What the Law Reform Commission want to do instead is enable the 
accused person at that stage of the proceeding to make an application to the magistrate magistrate for discharge. Mm. And importantly, even if a magistrate does discharge an accused on charges, the director of public prosecutions can still proceed with the charges in the, uh, the trial court anyway. So really, it's an administrative decision that makes very little difference. It's treated quite frequently as a formality. It's not very meaningful. Uh, mm. And... Um, I think that, as I say, it's just a historical artefact. Can you really say, though, that it's not meaningful if we're instituting a process that effectively, I mean, it seems to, in some sense, reverse the onus in some ways. I mean, you know, it should be for prosecutions to defend why why a charge or prosecution is appropriate. It's is... not for an accused to to say why they may or may not be guilty or, or even why there may not be sufficient evidence. I mean, I appreciate that that's kind of more of a philosophical um, rather than a practical consideration, but I, I think that, that to say that it's not meaningful isn't really correct, is it? It is entirely true that people could look at this and see how it's reversing the onus of proof, but I don't accept that because it is always the prosecution's burden to discharge in terms of showing that the evidence is worth continuing. The accused will still have the opportunity to apply for a discharge, and even if they don't and they end up in a trial court, the prosecution still has the entire burden to prove their case. These are a really <laughs> broad set of questions, but in your experience, and I guess I mean both personal and professional, what what do you think is the relevance um, of a court proceeding, a trial, a committal, these criminal justice processes, what is the importance to the community at large that we have these processes? Is it just denunciation of acts? Is it recognition of certain things that we obviously um, see as illegal or abhorrent? Or is there is there another part of it, um, community participation? Or, you know, what do you think is important about these processes um, to our society in general? Well, allowing for a trial, and sorry if I Cutting, cutting across you here, Eric, but uh, allowing for a trial, particularly a trial by jury where a person can be seen by their peers and judged by their peers um, has always been a fairly fundamental, and I don't say fairly, I mean it has been a fundamental aspect of the criminal justice system as we know it. It allows not only for the community participation, but the application of community standards. It's one of the last true uh, bulwarks that we have between the individual and the power of the state. And it's an excellent system. It is a fair system. It is a, a good system that allows the community to see justice being done as well as just hearing about it on the news. At a times like this, which seem more uh, fractured than ever before, I can't say that uh, getting rid of, of processes uh, like jury trials in this context is, is helpful. Eric, do you have a different point of view? Or? I, I can't add to that. I thought it was beautiful, Paul. A, a tear <laughs> just went down my face. It was just a beautiful, beautiful summary of our criminal justice process. But I, I do, I do to, to Meg's question, though, I, I can add this. There is a period of change in criminal justice at the moment, and it's been happening for some time now. Historically, the trial system was designed to protect the rights, or when I say historically, I mean in Australian 
criminal justice history principally. Yeah. Um, the system has been designed to protect the interests of accused people. That is why we have things like the presumption of innocence and these really key and very important ideas. But what we have seen in the past couple of decades, and especially in the past couple of years, is a shift in how we think about the participants in the legal system. We now put far greater weight and import on how victims are engaged in the process and how victims are affected by the process. And that does give us an opportunity to question the utility of the process as a whole. And by that, I don't mean uh, getting rid of any of the important protections for accused people, but to figure out whether or not that process is the right one to do good both in terms of looking after the interests of the accused person and making sure that the process does not engage in any further traumatization of a victim because it can be a very very hard process for victims and for witnesses as well and mention in all of this because the community has a silent interest in having the process proceed in Victoria, we've talked a lot about suppression orders in the past couple of years and keeping certain proceedings quiet to protect the parties involved, but this takes away from the community's right to be engaged in the process and to know what's happening. The reality is the principal concern is always going to be those cl most closely involved in the incident or in the, the, the trial, uh, but it is a, a time of change, I think, and it's, it will be very interesting to see how it unfolds. Great. Thank you very much for speaking to me. No worries at all. Dr. Greg Dixon is a linguist who lives and works in the Catherine region. He also works as an interpreter, interpreting Creole to English and English to Creole. And he'll be talking tonight about some of the complexities of working as an interpreter within the criminal justice system. So, Greg, thanks very much for speaking to us today. Perhaps um, you could um, give us a bit of a rundown of your role and your background, please. Yeah, no worries. And thanks for having me. Um, so I am mostly a linguist. Interpreting is um, something I've done for about 10 years and it's only something I kind of do on the side when I have time, when there is um, a need for it. My day-to-day -day job is um, as a linguist in a remote community doing education programs in Creole, which is a language spoken across a large part of Northern Australia. Um, so, and then I'm a trained linguist, so I've done research and study in linguistics and I've worked in the Catherine region since 2002. Um, so yeah, interpreting something that I am passionate about and interested in. And can you can you give us some context about Creole? Like I guess um, maybe our listeners and I probably have a sim simple understanding of what Creole is, but maybe you could enlighten that a bit. Yeah, so Creole is a language that is born out of colonisation. It's based on English, um, but it's been sort of adapted away from English so much that it's regarded as its own language. So, you know, same like in New Guinea, they speak a Creole there called Torpissin, and in Vanuatu they speak Vislama. So across Catherine region and Kimberleys mostly, you get a Creole that is the, the Creole of Northern Australia. Um, 
which is just called Creole. So yeah, it's largely based on English and English speakers can usually, um, you know, identify words that are from English or things look familiar, but there's too many differences that, um, you know, and someone who's never spoken Creole before can't speak it and will have difficulty understanding it. So that's why interpreters are needed for Creole. A question I have that's um, kind of stayed with me some, for some time. I've um, done a fair bit of work in the Kimberley and I was involved in a, a large inquest actually uh, that where interpreters were called on, um, but I found that the court uh, really struggled to understand the role of interpreters when uh, a lot of our clients spoke English at least as a second or third language. Mm -hmm. In the context of interpreting for Creole, um, what are the challenges? Like, do you do you get a sense that the court understands uh, the role of Creole interpreting? And do you also um, have a sense of how it is, I suppose, for clients and the judges and prosecutors when maybe a large portion of questions are understood in English, but then there's still a necessity for interpreting? Yeah, it is really tricky. I mean, there's lots of, there's quite a few aspects to that. I mean, there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, there's on the professional side and the professionals by that, I mean, sort of lawyers, um, generally non-Indigenous people or usually first language English speakers. Um, you know, there's a lot of professionals who aren't really strongly aware of how to use interpreters well. For me, the legal aspect is probably the, where they're the best in that regard. Um, when I've done interpreting for health and other areas, I think there's even less awareness, but lawyers seem to be pretty good in general. But even still, just an awareness of how to use interpreters well sometimes, how to identify if someone needs an interpreter. But then for Creole speakers as well, I mean, it's a thing often happens is that, you know, a lot of people have don't know what an interpreter is or don't really know what the role is um, or they don't know the word interpreter. So often a poli police or a lawyer might say, we have an interpreter here, do you want one? And then if that's all you've asked, that's assuming a lot about what that person understands about what an interpreter is and what they do. I'm really interested, I guess, in the perceptions of justice as well, in the court's self-reflection on their role. Because often in bush court, it, it can be, you know, one week every month or, or two days every month that this system of law is coming into town. It operates really fast, sometimes without interpreters. Often the context or the procedural processes are not entirely interpreted. And so I can imagine it feels like a really arbitrary process. And also sometimes the practicalities of working in remote locations where you might have a police car that contains the judge, the defence lawyer, the prosecutor, and sometimes the interpreter, and they drive into the court building, everyone sees them all get out of the same car and how that perception can really influence oh, such a good point. how the process works. For me, my impression is that just everything is confusing and everything seems arbitrary. So like at every turn, there's just things that may not make obvious sense to even me or Aboriginal people, especially if you're not used to the system. Like it just, like it's sort of everything, like why is this being, why are we doing an adjournment for this? 
Greg, I'm kind of interpreting what you're saying is saying your role is to interpret language, right? And I think um, because we're we, we're all kind of um, involved in the legal system and we see how the legal system itself seems to be its own language and we find it frustrating how, um, what's the word, Byzantine it is for our clients. And so it's almost like we're, we're trying to make a, 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 what is it, a circle fit into a square kind of thing where we're, we're, we believe that there's some need for an interpretation of the legal system. Mm. And and I feel like you're saying my role is to interpret language, you know, and there's some kind of discord between the two. Yeah, so I guess you guys, because you're in the legal profession, you feel like there is some scope for you to adapt and change it. For me as an interpreter, and I guess for the clients, the clients, people have to go, average people have to go before the court. So, you know, I'm just there to interpret. Clients certainly feel very powerless. I don't know. It's hard because I remember the first time I went to Bush Court, I was, and I had no experience with court or the legal system whatsoever. And I was just shocked and appalled that this was how the justice system works. Because I just remember my first impressions was just seeing a lot of young Aboriginal people kind of hanging around, coming in and out of court, barely knowing what was going on. But then it's hard now because that was maybe 12, 13 years ago. And now I'm used to what it's like. And so I don't have that outside of view anymore. I think that's interesting, Greg, because I um, I think that if you came and saw a mention list in the Melbourne Magistrates Court, um, you might have that exact same yeah, that right. feeling as well. Um, and I it, it kind of ties back to something that you said before about how a person um, needs to positively identify that they need an interpreter. I think a lot of people feel that way about the criminal justice system. It's a system that, in my experience, is often putting the greatest amount of responsibility on those who have the least amount of power. Mm. Uh, to think about someone who is coming from a very marginalised community, to, to have um, rules in place or procedures that mean that that person who may not have any power or limited comprehension, limited time, um, limited exposure to these concepts or ideas before, a system that relies on them being able to positively articulate what they need and then to kind of fight for it um, yeah. is in a way a sort of a... Um, I think that that's almost like a metaphor for how some parts of the system work in my in my experience. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, going back to an older question, like how can lawyers help with making sure Creole interpreters are used if needed and how can you identify that need? Yeah, like there's so many aspects to that, knowing what an interpreter is, um, knowing who the interpreter is, sort of feeling comfortable with what their role is, and the other thing that people often forget is that an interpreter isn't just there to interpret the police statement or the police questions or what the lawyer want to ask into Creole. It gives the Creole speaker an opportunity to say what they need to say and ask the questions without having to think first, how do I say this in English? Even if their English is pretty good, they still are having to go, you know, having these mental processes. Okay, how do I ask this question? But if the interpreter's there, it lets them, gives them the opportunity to talk more than they probably would otherwise. Um, sorry, I got sidetracked then. I was going back to an older question, but. No, that was great. 
Um, well, thank you for your time, Greg. I think um, we've all been reflecting on. I'm reflecting on what I what I what I expect systemic change for interpreters is versus um, maybe what you might imagine it is. I think um, from a lawyer's perspective, we're just looking for so much structural reform and. Um, it's clear to me that the interpreter is one part of that kind of reform. But thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, yeah, I appreciate your time. And that was Dr. Greg Dixon uh, speaking to us from Catherine. Uh, I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. You're with Sarush, Meg, Ali and Bonnie on Done By Law. We'll tune in and speak to you again in, uh, in the next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.